Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Hey, uh, before we jump into the word, I, I feel like I owe some of you an apology. Uh, apparently, I started all sorts of marital fights last week when I talked about white versus colored Christmas lights. And those of you who managed to navigate that one okay really struggled with the toilet paper over or under. Like, I preached my guts out about family last week, and when I got to the parking lot, the only conversation people wanted to have with me was whether the toilet paper went under or over. And some of you went so far as to show me the original patent. Um, This was sent to me. Original patent from 1891. I don't know what to say about that other than fake news. So it goes under. This is why we're talking about family. So as I said last week, let me just kind of catch you up a little bit if you weren't able to be with us last week. Uh, Of all the words that Jesus uses and New Testament uh, writers use to describe a community of faith, my favorite is family. And the reason my favorite is family is it leaves a certain amount of room for dysfunction, like people to not see things the same way. So you can be a toilet paper over person and outside of the will of God, um, but you can still be part of my family. Turn to your neighbor and say, you're a little bit messed up. But now turn to that same neighbor and say, it's okay because I'm a little bit messed up too. This is the beauty of family. Nobody has to be perfect. Uh, The psalmist David in Psalm 68 says this. He says, a father to the fatherless, a defender of the widows, is God in his holy dwelling. And then he goes on to say, God sets, God establishes the lonely in families. That, That word lonely means those who are relationally disconnected. Uh, He says, he leads forth the prisoners with singing. Where does he lead the prisoners forth to? Families. And then he goes on to say, but those who choose to live outside of kind of God's relational dynamic find themselves really in a dry and in a barren place. So God takes extremely different, diverse people, and he forms them into a family. And because you and I come from very different family backgrounds, we have very diverse families of origin represented here, We have to be really intentional about how we choose to relate to one another. And we talked last week about the fact that we have to be aware that we can intentionally or unintentionally build relational barriers between us and those that God has placed in this family. I called them levees. We we talked about um, the the Hurricane Katrina and, and how, you know, levees broke. And it was brought to my attention after the fact that not everybody knows what a levee is. And I wanted to help you. I wanted to help you understand, get a word picture. So I Googled Levy image, and this is what I got. Eugene Levy, not not very helpful. But because I love you deeply, I was committed to keep going down the Google track, uh, and I found this picture. So this is a levee. It is something that is built to keep a, a barrier that keeps water from moving from one area to another. And in our context, we were talking about things that, that keep, restrict the flow of God moving in and among people. Um, The passage, uh, by reminder, Ephesians 2.22, says this. In him, in God, 
you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So what we were talking about last week was that there is a unique anointing that comes to rest upon a people when they choose to walk in fellowship and family relationship with one another. And so we want to be intentional to make sure that there aren't any artificial boundaries, borders, or barriers between us because that will reflect, uh, restrict, excuse me, the flow of what God might want to do. We said God not only inhabits a people, excuse me, God inhabits both a person and a people. So what I want to talk about a little bit today is what do we do? How do we live? How can we posture ourselves in such a way that if there are levees, if there are barriers, things that would restrict us relationally, that we could begin to move them aside? And these, these levees could be, they could be anger. Uh, I stay distant because I'm, I'm angry with that person or I'm just an angry person myself. Pain sometimes keeps us disconnected. Pride can, be dis- can keep us disconnected. I'm fine on my own. I don't need people. I've got everything I need. Um, even prejudice. My, my perspective of a person that's outside of maybe any relational context, I see you a certain way and I decide I don't want to be close to you. So we're going to talk about how do we live together as a people of God in such a way that those boundaries are broken down. And if I can, and I know I can because I've got the microphone, you don't, um, I want to pray. Uh, not because God isn't here, God's obviously here, but even as I'm hearing myself talk, I'm finding myself struggling just a little bit to, to communicate what I feel like the Lord wants to communicate. And there's, there's obviously the work and the prep and the message I've written, but I feel like this morning there will also be one or two moments for us that are just very spirit-breathed, and I don't want to miss those. Because I think among the other things that the Lord wants to do here this morning is that there's some healing that's going to take place. Perhaps there are wounds or experiences that you have carried through life that makes it hard for you to connect relationally to other people. I believe that as we talk and as the Holy Spirit is present, he's going to bring healing in some of those areas. So can we, can we take just a minute and pray? Is that okay? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to receive that as a yes. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. I'm so grateful, Jesus, that you've taught us whenever two or more are gathered together in your name, that you're present there as well. Lord, as we walk through your word and and the lessons you've shown me this week, I ask that our time together would not be limited by my own understanding or my own perspective on a scripture, but that, Holy Spirit, you would be speaking to each of us individually. Your love for us is so compelling, so complete, that we want to be able to step into and experience it the way you have it for us. So, Lord, give, give me clarity of thought, give us together discernment and ears to hear what you would say to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Okay, so we're going to talk for a few minutes about how we overcome some of these relational barriers. And, and we're, going to, we're going to do that by looking together at the team Jesus built and some of the things that he encouraged them in. Um, the team Jesus built, so he grabbed these 12 guys, right? And he said, hey, we're going to do life together, and I'm going to build you into a community. He would ultimately call them a family. But they had some significant issues they needed to overcome. They were a very diverse group you had those who were very high income. You had those that were very low income. You remember the story? You got a couple of brothers with significant anger issues. Remember the story of like they didn't quite get their way in Samaria? So the two sons of thunder are having a conversation with Jesus on the way out the door. Can we call down fire and just smoke this whole place? That is not a good perspective to have with people that you're going to go into a relationship with. 
right? Just wipe them all out, God. We're better on our own. Um, you had a tax collector, Matthew, um, who was really a Roman collaborator. Uh, the Roman Empire oversaw Israel at this time. But then you also had Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot, another word for zealot, would be religious terrorist. And his primary goal was to overthrow Rome and establish a Jewish theocracy. So Jesus says, hey, we're going to be family. Just a very interesting dynamic. So one day, they're gathered together around the dinner table, and Jesus gives them the game plan. Here's how we're going to be family together. And I, when I hear Jesus teach, often I'll go back a few verses or even a few chapters to try to get an understanding of the context. Like, what's the feeling in the room right now as Jesus is teaching this way? And as Jesus begins to teach in this particular passage, it's pretty uncomfortable in the room. So they're sitting up there around the dinner table. Jesus has just washed their feet, which is weird. And then Jesus tells them that they need to wash each other's feet, which is gross. And then he tells them that his body is going to be broken, and they're going to eat it. And his blood is going to be shed, and they're going to drink it. So that's super confusing. And then Judas has just gotten up and walked out the door to betray Jesus, and everyone around the table knows it. So there's a lot going on. So all this is happening, and Jesus goes, guys, I've got a new commandment for you. Now, the Jewish people were very commandment-driven, so they would have, like, really perked up their ears at this, like, oh, something new. Jesus wants to give us a new commandment. They would have paid really close attention. Now, given what's happening in the room, they might have expected that new commandment to be, watch your back, Uh, pick better friends. But Jesus doesn't say anything like that. He talks to them about loving one another. John 13, verse 34, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. Now, Jesus is a rabbi. He's a religious teacher. And there is this idea in rabbinical teaching, rabbinical thought, that if something was important, it would be repeated. And the more something is repeated, that would be a clue to the listener, this is a really big deal. You know those passages in in the gospel where Jesus is teaching and he says, truly I say to you, truly, truly I say to you? That's a a rabbinic tool where he's saying, pay really close attention, I'm about to say something important. And so when he uses in three consecutive sentences the phrase love one another or love each other, the disciples were going to be going, okay, this is a really big deal, something we have to pay attention to. But then think about them around the table. So Jesus is essentially saying Simon the Zealot, Love Matthew, the tax collector, the same way I loved you. This is a super big ask. Like, if I'm Simon, I'm like, I don't even like that guy. And and now you're telling me that I have to love him. As a kid, I would read through this passage and I'd have this question. Like, how can Jesus command an emotion? You're telling me I have to feel a certain way about someone. Love this person. How can you compel a feeling out of me. How can you expect me to love someone that I don't even like? Anybody in your life that you don't like? Yeah. (laughs) Little fast on that one, big guy. We'll we'll pray when we're done. Prayer team will be available to my left. You're right. But no, that's real. Like we're surrounded by people that we sometimes would not choose to walk through life with. In the family context, in the body of Christ context, we don't have a choice. We are joined together as family by covenant. Now, Here's the thing. Jesus has a number of Greek words that he can choose from 
when he tells his disciples to love one another. We translate them all into English as the word love, but they're different in Greek. In Greek, you have the word eros. That's one word we translate love. Think, think Valentine's Day. Think how you doing, right? That's, that's love. That's, that's eros. Like, you're really attractive to me, and so I want to get close to you because of the way it makes me feel. There's, there's the word phileo. Phileo is like, I got you, bro. We're, we're tight. It's, it's a brotherly love. Think, think Philadelphia. Then there's, then there's the Greek word storge, which is familial or tribal love. So if Josh, for example, was to say, I love the angels, we wouldn't know why, but we would know the Greek word he was using was storge. So it's, it's kind of a tribal affinity. Jesus doesn't use any of these words. Jesus chooses the word agape. Agape is love that seeks the well-being or the good of its object. When someone is exercising agape, the person who is loving is actually stepping back and taking a secondary role, and the recipient of that love is primary. So if I love you with an agape love, I am willing to be diminished that you might become whole or you might become healthy. So Jesus is saying, I, Matthew, Simon, I want you guys to agape one another. I want you to be irrevocably committed to the other's good. I want you to do whatever is in your power to bring them to a place of health and joy and vitality. This is what he is saying. He looks at this really diverse group of people and says, agape one another. So Jesus is not commanding that we feel a certain way. However, he is commanding, and the word command, there's not a lot of wiggle room in that. He is commanding that we behave a certain way. If, if the disciples are anything like me, then, then Simon probably had a moment when he's walking through, you know, Judea going, hey, I'm all in for Jesus. I like him. Matthew's a jerk. I don't even know why Jesus picked him. And yet Jesus would be saying to Simon, you have to be irrevocably committed to Matthew's good to belong to my family. Why would Jesus call this a new commandment? Well, one, um, they weren't used to doing that. Two, remember, we're at the Last Supper. Jesus says, this is the cup of a new covenant. When Jesus was ushering in a new covenant, he was also ushering in a new way of being human. Because the Spirit of God, we talked about this in the last series, was now indwelling men and women. They were going to be empowered to live in a way that they had not been able to live in before. God gives us a new heart, a new mind, a new spirit, not only that we might know him, but that we might be like him. So God in Christ could have commanded everyone to agape each other prior to going to the cross and the coming of the Holy Spirit. I don't think they would have been able to. And the reason I come to that conclusion is if you read the Old Testament, All of the old relational commandments were about what not to do. Think the Ten Commandments. Jesus gathered his people and says, hey, listen, here's how you're going to relate to each other. Don't lie. Don't kill. Don't covet. Don't steal. I want you to work to subdue your sinful nature. And now, with the new commandment, love one another, he is actually encouraging his family to begin to release this new spirit-breathed nature. We have a new vitality, a new ability to relate not only to God, but to one another in a way that was not possible 
before the coming of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says to us that this behavior is going to be foundational to the establishment of a church family. And when we behave toward one another this way, because it is not natural, it is supernatural, it will be a sign to the world around us that we belong to Jesus. Because people will see us agapeing one another, preferring the other, putting their needs ahead of our own, and go, well, that's just weird. I'm not wired that way. I'm wired to take and not to give. But we are partakers of a new nature, and so we're empowered to behave toward one another in a way that those who are born again, or excuse me, are not born again, don't know how to. And this theme you're going to find throughout the New Testament. All of the New Testament writers would highlight it. Paul. Paul would say this, let love be your highest goal. That's agape. John. John would say, we know that we have passed from dead death to life because we agape our brothers. Anyone who does not agape, they remain in death, meaning the signs of new creation are not in them if they are not living this way toward those with whom they're in community. James. James would say, if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, agape your neighbor as yourself, you're doing it right. What does that mean? It means if you need a measuring stick to figure out how well you're doing this walking out with Jesus thing, it's not a matter of how much you read your Bible, how much you give, or even how much you pray. Jesus says, if you want a true measuring stick of how well you're doing growing as a disciple, look for whether or not you are agapeing the people around you. Why would that be the measuring stick? Because I can pray alone, I can give alone, and I can read alone. And there is absolutely zero relational friction. But when I begin to interact with you and you with me, there is possibility time and again for pain, misunderstanding, competing allegiances, competing loyalties. And if in the context of all of that messed up stuff, we can still agape one another, well, that's the sign that God is up to something phenomenal. And Peter finally says this. He says, most important of all, continue to show deep agape for each other because agape, it covers a multitude of sins. This, this was to be the defining characteristic of God's new family, not our, excuse me, personalities, our perspectives, or our politics. You can pick any other characteristic, and if you try to make that the defining characteristic of a family of God, it leads to division because someone will always be on the other side of whatever perspective you have. But love, Scripture says, leads to unity. And the picture of love that Jesus has just provided is washing someone's feet. Now, moment of honesty. I have a love-hate relationship with the foot washing story for a number of reasons. One, I'm not a huge fan of other people's feet. Just, I'm just not. I mean, I'm not even a fan of my own feet. Do you remember, like, the first time you went and saw one of the Lord of the Rings movies? I'm sitting in the theater. You meet a hobbit. They kind of pan from top to the bottom. I'm like, there's my people. I have hobbit feet. They're big. They're kind of hairy. I've got that second toe that sticks out, you know, further than the, than the big toe. And, and sometimes it looks like a family of beavers have been chewing on my toenails. They're just, they're not attractive. And so the picture of washing somebody else, I'm like, oh, man, I don't even like to wash my feet. I do. I do. Otherwise, Wendy's like, no, out of bed. There's your feet. Not good. Secondly, the second thing that I get challenged by in this story is if you've got muddy feet and you track your mud into my house, 
my first response is not, hey, how can I help you clean it up? How can I help you clean your feet up? My first response is, go get a mop and fix this mess you made, right? I am inconvenienced by other people's mud and muck and dirt. And the picture I have in Jesus in this story, though we haven't read it, is he's more concerned with the condition of the person who has muddy feet than he is what that mud is doing in the room. In the ancient Near East of Jesus' time, people went everywhere by foot. I mean, they walked long, dry, dusty roads. And if you're walking a long, dry, dusty road and there's something in that road, there's a pretty good chance you're going to step in it. It could get really nasty and it could get really unpleasant. And so when you came to a house or you came to a tent, foot washing was a cultural norm. If it was a normal house or tent, they would provide water and you would wash your own feet. If it was a wealthy family, then they would have a slave and that slave would wash your feet. And that slave was the lowliest position of all the servants and slaves in the household. This is like the job you don't want. Because people who are walking, their feet are nasty. Now, when the disciples get to the upper room, there is not only no one there to wash their feet, but there is no water. And so all of these disciples who have just tramped from Bethany through the streets of Jerusalem into the upper room are sitting around this table with crusty, dirty nasty feet. And Jesus doesn't rebuke them for the mud and the muck they carried in. Jesus doesn't look at them and go, hey, you need to go get some water and clean my feet and your feet. Jesus is concerned with their condition. He's about to lead them in this precious moment. And I think, I mean, I'm reading myself into the text. Jesus could well be thinking it's pretty unpleasant for Peter to sit at this table with dirty feet. James and John, there was a camel on the road. I can't believe those guys couldn't miss it. It's probably not nice to sit to eat with the aroma of the street coming up. And so rather than be personally inconvenienced and just pretend there wasn't any dirt, because come on, church, sometimes we can be really good at pretending nobody's got dirty feet. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, your feet stink. He doesn't say, James, you need to go outside and scrape that off. Jesus goes and gets a bowl of water, and he takes off his robes of a rabbi. So you would know Jesus was a rabbi not just because he was super smart, but because of the way he dressed. So this robe was a position, a, a representation of his authority. And he lays aside the mantle of his authority. He wraps a towel around his waist. He kneels down on the ground, and he begins to wash the feet of the disciples. This is so outside the bounds of normal behavior that Peter gets twisted. I mean, Peter looks at Jesus and goes, you can't wash my feet. This is so out of bounds. And Jesus says, Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you, you have no part in what I'm doing. And then Peter, right, always the extremist, give me a shower, right? Dunk me. I'm good. You and I, I won't speak for you. I'll speak for me. There are times in my life where I have a tendency to want people to clean themselves up before I want to sit down at the table with them. If you just fix that theological position, that political perspective, that behavior, that attitude, then we can sit down and break bread together. Jesus says, 
whatever would keep us apart, whatever would be uncomfortable between us, I'm going to get down on my knees and I am going to do the work to cleanse that off of you. And then Jesus says to his disciples, this is how I want you to behave one to another. What would happen? What might God be able to do here at LFC? If every time somebody who walked in with dirt around their feet and their ankles, maybe smelling a little funny, tracking life all over our clean floor, wasn't expected to somehow change and get cleaned up before they would be accepted and belong. But we as a church family had an orientation toward them and one another that when we saw dirt, we stepped in to clean it up. Because I got to tell you, walking around in the mud and the muck is not comfortable. It is not pleasant. I went golfing yesterday. I didn't really go golfing. I went, I went swinging a club and looking for a ball. Um, but, but we started early in the morning, and it was wet. And by, like, the sixth hole, my shoes are like a swimming pool, just wet and mushy. It was not comfortable. And, and when I took my shoes off, it was unpleasant. Guys that are walking around with muck and mud and residual pain and disappointment and dysfunction and hurt aren't doing it because they like it. They're doing it because they don't know how to be free of it. And Jesus says to his disciples, get down on your knees and wash them. Show them how to get free of it. Approach them with grace and humility. Think about this foot washing picture. From all I know of Jesus, now I've never seen a picture. I've seen some pictures. Don't think they're necessarily accurate. They were paintings. Um, Nobody had a Polaroid. Uh, But even as I've seen this represented by other artists, I have never seen Jesus with super long arms going, let me wash your feet. Right? If Jesus is going to wash Peter's feet, he's got to get up close next to the muck and the stink. And unless he's like super limber, I don't think he did one of these either. Jesus would have knelt on the floor before Peter, gotten as close to the gunk as is possible, and cleaned him. This is the word picture Jesus has for us when he's talking about how we're supposed to love one another. Well, John, you're talking about people who walk in off the street who don't know Jesus, right? No. Should we, should we behave that way toward him? Absolutely. But what was Jesus saying to the disciples? Love each other this way. That means when you carry your junk in off the street, my first inclination needs to be to kneel before you and help you wash that off. When I carry my junk in off the street, then you need to care for me the same way. This is what it means to be in loving relationship as a family. This is what agape does. In order for us to be that kind of a people, In order for us to live into Christ's example, it's going to require both trust and humility. This is what a family is. It's an environment of trust and humility where we care for each other. Why does it require both trust and humility? I got to trust that when I show you my stinky feet, you're not running out the door. I got to trust that you're not going to judge me for my pain or my dysfunction or my dirt. 
I've got to trust that I can stand up here on a Sunday morning and go, guys, I'm a little bit discombobulated. I feel like I'm slightly out of sync. Can we please pray without the fear that you're going to walk out the door going, that guy had a week to put a message together and he got up and didn't know what he was talking about. I need to be able to engage with you from a position of vulnerability and honesty. Because if we cannot be vulnerable and honest together, we cannot experience agape. Because to experience agape, you need to be able to do what the other needs. And if we don't communicate our needs, how can we possibly? It requires trust. It also requires humility. When you come to someone with your pain or your sorrow or your disappointment, that person needs to be able to receive what you are saying with humility and lean into you with compassion. There is no room in the body of Christ for people to experience judgment when they are struggling. You tracking with me? This isn't in the notes. This is just my heart to your heart. We need to be a people who are honest and integrous and safe and humble and compassionate and empathetic and kind. This is what it means to be a community of faith that lives together as a family. And those things are not dependent upon the person with whom we're interacting. We have to be those things despite the person with whom we're interacting. Simon, Matthew. Matthew, Simon. Doing okay? We've all got stinky feet. My feet stink. I mean, I'll tell you, I got issues and I've got issues. And I'm leaning into Jesus in my issues and in my disappointments and in my struggles. And he's meeting me there as he is you. If your expectation of me or of Pastor Wendy is perfection, uh, can I just tell you, you are going to be deeply and profoundly disappointed. Um, If your hope or expectation of me is I'm going to get it right every single time, prepare to be deeply frustrated and disappointed ongoingly. If, like me, you are committed to discover the best that God has for you and learn to align your life with him as a disciple, we can have so much stinking fun together. But there has to be room for people to be honest about their struggles, their questions, their disappointments, and even their failures. Let me tell you why. We get that we're meant to show agape to one another. The love you know is the love you show. I'll say that to you again. The love you know is the love you show. Some of you may remember the the five love languages. They were like all the rage a, a few years back. And I'm not demeaning them. They're very, very helpful. But one of the things that they taught us is that people operated with five particular love languages. So if Wendy's love language was acts of service, but my love language was quality time, it was possible that the love I know and the love I show wouldn't look very loving to Wendy. So if I'm having a great time loving her by sitting on the couch watching a show together and Wendy in her mind is thinking, for the love of all that's holy, would you please do some laundry? That's not very loving of me. The love you know is the love you show. The same is true of agape. If I am not experiencing it, I don't know how to give it. And this is so important that Paul made it a prayer focus. He prayed in Ephesians 3, 
may you have the power, the strength to understand, as all of God's people should, how wide and long, high and deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to fully understand. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. When will you be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God? When you experience, when you know the love of God. Sometimes we don't experience agape because we're too embarrassed or ashamed of the condition of our feet. We're worried about what people might think. So rather than be vulnerable, rather than be honest, we just keep our shoes on and we hope nobody notices. And we may even come to the place where we say, hey, I am happy to wash the feet of others, but I am not willing to let anybody wash my feet. That may sound noble and that may sound kind, but the fact of the matter is, if I am unwilling to receive this kind of love, I am going to be ill-equipped to give that kind of love. Whatever I am giving is a, an imperfect version. It's, a, it's an imposture. It's a, it's a picture of that love because it's not coming from a place of authenticity. I am not giving what I have first received. Agape isn't earned. Agape isn't even deserved. Agape is a gift. Agape is what happens when someone wants the best for someone else. We receive agape when we realize that God wants the best for us. And sometimes we wrestle with whether or not we are worthy to receive love because of a multitude of reasons. Shortly after this foot washing experience, shortly after this command to love one another, to agape one another, Jesus says this in verse 13. Greater agape has no one than this. This is, this is as good as it gets that he laid down his life for his friends. And what happens after that? Jesus goes to the garden. Then Jesus goes to the cross. And he lays down his life for you. Which means, regardless of whether or not you feel worthy or deserving, you have already experienced already experienced the most complete and radical expression of love ever known in the history of mankind. You have already received it. So what on earth would make us think now that we are somehow disqualified from receiving that love to a lesser degree? There are a number of things that, that just seem to flare their ugly heads. This, this is back to the Levy conversation. These are the things that tend to separate us from one another and from the love of God. I just started writing them at my desk today. One of the things that, that seems to be a barrier from, at, from time to time is pride. I can do it myself. I can do it myself. Newsflash. No, you can't. I mean, we, we covered that in Design for a Relationship last week. But there's hope. Because Scripture says, humble yourself beneath God's mighty hand. Beneath God's mighty hand, and he will lift you up. Sometimes shame makes us step back and build a barrier because we're embarrassed about what people will think of us if they actually really knew us. Scripture says you need to understand there's no condemnation 
for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are called according to his purpose. Shame is not meant to disqualify us from the love of God. When we experience that shame, that should be an indicator that we need to press even more deeply in to his presence because it's his love that breaks the power of shame. Fear? What if it doesn't work? What if God doesn't like me? What if God doesn't love me? Scripture says God's perfect love casts out fear. The only way to counter the fear of being unloved is to press in to the presence of Jesus to experience that love. The love of God is designed as an incomplete word. It it deconstructs fear. It is antithetical to fear. Past hurts. John, you don't understand what I've experienced. I probably don't, and I'm so sorry that you've experienced hurts that make it hard for you to trust again or love again or even hope again. But Jesus understands this, and this is what he says to you in Matthew. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, you who are burdened. You'll find rest for your souls. Maybe, Maybe your current or your past failures is keeping you from pressing in again. I would say to you, Scripture says, Nothing, say nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord. No thing, past, present, future. You and I are called to be a loving community. And in order to be a loving community, we must first be a loved community. Hear me again say this love is unearned. It is unearned. It's undeserved. You don't have to strive for it. You don't have to work for it. But you do have to receive it. So we've talked about the postures to take of vulnerability, love, authenticity, to love one another. But I want to I want to deal just for a moment with those places that keep us from receiving the love of God. This is what I think the Holy Spirit was leading us to a moment ago when I stopped and prayed. This is a place where I think God wants to bring liberty and hope and freedom and joy. If you feel like you are somehow disqualified or outside the scope of God's love, I just, a couple of comments. If I claim that God can't or won't love me, I'm calling God a liar. Like saying God can't love me, that seems kind of innocuous. But calling God a liar, that seems like a bigger deal. Yet scripture says, because God so loved the world, and I'm part of the world. If I claim that God can't or won't love me, I'm somehow worse off than everyone else. That sounds like abject humility, but it's actually pride. Because I'm saying I'm exceptional. I'm outside the bounds of what's available to everyone else. And the answer to pride is to name it and simply humble ourselves. This tends to be a big one. Sometimes I have trouble accepting God's love for me because I don't like me. Sometimes we get up in the morning, we look in the mirror, we kind of point at that person and go, you suck. Like, You're just a hot mess. And we may be accurate 
in that perception. And yet that doesn't keep us from the love of God. That actually makes us a candidate. God said to Paul, he said, my power is made manifest in your weakness, in your suckiness. That's an area where I get to come alongside and do something for you that you can't do for yourself. If you're willing, I want to invite you just to bow your heads and close your eyes for just a minute. We're almost done. Is there a place, an issue, a thought that keeps you from receiving the love of God? You may have followed Jesus your whole life. You may be really good at serving other people, washing their feet, but there just seems to be this disconnect when it comes to receiving God's love yourself. You may know immediately what that is. There may be nothing. You may need to ask God to show you. Ten seconds. you're able, I'd like to invite you to stand to your feet. And I'm going to ask you to put your hands out like this, like you're holding on to something. I was talking to somebody after the second service, after the first service. This would be the second service. And he, he said, John, I hold grudges. And it, it keeps me from receiving God's love. I didn't realize that. And the Lord just made it so clear. I hold grudges. And in a moment, what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you simply to release those to Jesus. And he goes, John, when I opened my hands, I felt it lift. God did something, which is, I believe, what God wants to do for you. So if there is something that has held on to you or you have held on to that has made it hard for you to receive the love of God, let's just release it to Jesus. Just let it go. Jesus, we bring these to you as an offering. And they are as precious to you as silver or gold because we are releasing something that we might receive. We are letting go of something that would keep us from walking closely with you. So Lord, I ask whatever we have released to you, you would take far from us in this name, in this moment. Jesus, in your name, break the power of fear, of anxiety, of pride of guilt, of shame, of unforgiveness, that we might receive the love that we were designed to walk in. Because God, as much as we want to be a loving community, it begins with being a loved community. Holy Spirit, if there are places where we have experienced hurt, pain, damage, because of these things that we have released to you now, we invite your healing touch to come and restore. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen and amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.